Good morning. It's great to be here with you. Um, I'm going to dive straight in, if that's all right, and um, tell you a story about a friend of mine who was killed in a car accident seven years ago. Uh, My friend was 34 years old, really loved God. She was a Christian. She worked for a church. And she was cycling to work one day when she was hit by a lorry, by a truck, basically. Um, And so as she was cycling along this, this truck driver reversed, and he reversed over her. And when it came um, to the court case, uh, you know, he'd been charged with causing death by dangerous driving. And at the court case, he said that he was guilty. Um, He didn't really have a lot of choice. You know, he'd had a rearview mirror. He'd had the camera that shows you your blind spots, so he didn't have any blind spots. But also other drivers and um, people were yelling at him to stop and um, hooting their horns trying to get him to stop. But he was oblivious to it all. He didn't notice any of it until it was too late and he'd reversed over my friend and killed her. So the judge said to him when they found him guilty... I need to warn you that when we come back for sentencing, you are facing a custodial sentence. You are going to go to prison. Now, in the gap between the judge saying that and the time to come back for sentencing, my friend's parents wrote to the judge and basically said, we're Christians and we want you to show mercy to the man who killed our daughter. We don't think that him going to prison will serve any purpose. It won't bring our daughter back. In fact, what they actually said is, we recognise how he's been affected by what has happened, which is pretty astonishing, isn't it? I'm not sure I would be thinking about how the other person was feeling in that situation. But because of the letter that my friend's parents wrote to the judge, the judge said to him on sentencing day, I'm going to show mercy like they've asked me to. I'm not going to send you to prison. He still lost his driving license, there were still consequences for his actions, but the judge didn't send him to prison. And local and national newspapers covered this story with, um, one of them used the headline, Death Driver Shown Mercy. And the reason the papers cover it is because this kind of mercy is so incredibly rare. This isn't the sort of thing we hear about every day, this level of forgiveness and mercy and compassion And I know you've recently been um, in this preaching series called This Is Your God, where you've been exploring what our God is like. And today I want to pick up on that a little bit by looking at the primary way that God identifies himself and what that means for those of us who follow him. You know, in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, the early part of the Bible, there's a moment where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And you know, I often think about this, God could have responded in a number of ways. He could have um, just picked up a mountain and moved it. He could have just, I don't know, caused a massive storm to suddenly rage. Or he could have stilled a storm. God could have shown his glory in any number of ways. And I would have probably thought of something quite grand and spectacular if I was God. But when God says, okay, I'll show you my glory, come up to the mountain, we pick up the story in Exodus 34, which will come up on the screen. And this is what happened. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So when God was revealing himself to Moses, when Moses was getting just about as close to God as it was possible for anyone to get before Jesus came, 
God's primary way of describing himself was as a God merciful and gracious. That's why my friend's parents were able to write to the judge and say, will you show mercy to the man who took our daughter from us? They'd seen the glory of God. They'd seen something of this wonderful mercy of God in their own lives. And so they were able to extend mercy even to the man who killed their daughter. The God that we worship is a God of mercy. This means that he is actively kind to those who have no right to expect it, those who have no claim on it, those who don't deserve it. And God's mercy is available to anyone who will come. So if you're here um, this morning and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know this God you've all been worshipping, I don't know this God you're talking about, his mercy is available for you this morning. But throughout the whole Bible, we see that God's mercy is especially focused on those facing poverty and justice, injustice. God is especially concerned about the plight of those who are not being shown mercy by those around them. Those who are struggling in life for one reason or another. Those that society judges or doesn't care about or discards or despises. God is especially concerned to show his mercy to those people. We see it in the Old Testament, in the early part of the Bible, there are so many stipulations in the law that God gives to Moses that are about how to provide for and protect the poor. It's right at the heart of where God is saying to Moses, this is, these are kind of the rules that you should all live by so that your community will be set apart from all the peoples on the earth. This is the best way that you will flourish and others will look to you and believe that your God is the real God. And in it, in the heart of it, is all this concern and care for those facing poverty and injustice. God set mercy into the very foundation of the society that he was creating. I could give you loads of examples, but for the sake of time, I'll just say you can look at Leviticus 25, where it talks about the year of Jubilee. And what happened then was if you had got yourself into debt, if you'd fallen into debt or you'd had to intentionally get yourself into debt to survive, in the year of Jubilee, your debt would be cancelled. If you'd had to sell yourself into slavery as a way to survive, in the year of Jubilee, you would be set free again. And if you'd had to give up your land that you owned, maybe that had been in your family for generations, in the year of Jubilee, it would be given back to you. It meant that the extremes of wealth and poverty were modified. You couldn't go on getting richer and richer and richer at the expense of the poor because this year would come when everything would be reset again. But also it meant that if you were in poverty, you were never hopeless. There was always hope for you. You know, one of the biggest causes of suicide in this country is debt. And one of the biggest causes of marriage breakdown in this country is debt. But in God's law, he says, if the debts will be wiped out, all you've got to do is wait for this time to come around and your debt will be wiped out. It will be cancelled. So there's no need to commit suicide. There's no need for a marriage breakdown. There's no need to run away from your problems because you know that there's a time coming that God has set in stone when you will get freedom again. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's beautiful that God wrote this into the law so that no one ever had to be in despair. There was always hope because everything would be restored. And it's not just in the law, it's in the Psalms in the Bible, the poetic part of the Bible too. 
If you have a look at Psalm 107, you'll see a whole list of different people that it says were in distress. You'll see that there are the hungry and the homeless, uh, but also the guilty and imprisoned, the foolish and those who have harmed themselves, and those who are trying to make an honest living but are at their wit's end because of a storm that's raging around them. These are people, some are in need through their own decisions, and some are in need through no fault of their own whatsoever. But the reaction of God to every single one of them is exactly the same. It says when they cried out in their distress, God came. He rescued them. He had mercy on them. He delivered them. We also see God's mercy in the writing of the prophets. Again, I'll just give you one example in Isaiah 58. When God says to his people what true fasting looks like, what what really truly following God looks like, And he says, it's not just kind of about the outward appearance of being religious. It's about breaking the chains of injustice that hold people down. It's about feeding the hungry and giving shelter to the homeless. And in fact, Jesus started his whole ministry by highlighting God's special concern for the poor. His care for the poor wasn't just a sideshow. It wasn't something he did when he got around to it. It was at the heart of who Jesus was and is and everything that he did. And the reason for that is because it's in the character of God. He was revealing the merciful character of God. So in Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus is handed a scroll and he found the place where it's written, the spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to set the captives free. It says Jesus found the place where it's written. It wasn't an accident. Jesus just wasn't handed a bit of the Bible and said, here, read this. He found the place where that was written because he wanted to start his whole ministry saying, I'm coming to bring good news to the poor. You know, when Jesus came, there was this breaking in of heaven to earth. And often when we talk about that, we talk in the context of signs and wonders and miracles and healings. And all of that's wonderful. And we want to see more and more of that. But sometimes we forget to mention that actually when when this moment came where Jesus came and heaven invaded earth, it also meant that the poor were lifted up out of their poverty. It also meant that poverty was alleviated and freedom came for the oppressed. You know, God's mercy is never based on us. It's never based on us. He's merciful because it's who he is. He's merciful because it's fundamental to his character and he never acts out of character. I don't know about you, but I do all the time. I don't always act the same way. One day, if I wake up on the wrong side of bed, I act one way. And the next day, if I'm in a good mood, I might act differently. Some days I'm kind and some days I'm unkind. Actually, often, sometimes in an hour, I can do both. God isn't like that. God is merciful all the time. Every moment of every day, for all eternity, God is merciful. And in Micah 7, it says that God delights to show mercy. He delights to, he loves to. It's not something that, you know, you have to force him to do. It's not something you have to plead with him to do. God loves to show mercy. He loves it. In Ephesians 2, it says God is rich in mercy. He's rich in it. He's abounding in it. He's not got a limited supply. In Lamentations, it says his mercies are new every day. If you follow Jesus here, aren't you glad of that? I'm so glad that his mercy to me is new every day because I need new mercy every day. I need fresh mercy every day. Mercy is at the very heart of God and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But what's also amazing is that if you follow Jesus, he extends an invitation to you to be merciful too. 
In Luke 6, verse 36, it says, Jesus says this, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So if you're a follower of Jesus, he's, he's handing you this wonderful invitation saying, you can be like God. You can come and imitate God. You can be a mercy bringer yourself. You can partner with God in showing mercy to people around you. You can work with God to bring mercy to your family, to your community, to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to the church and to the poor, and to those who are oppressed and vulnerable and marginalized. To all those people that Psalm 107 mentions, the hungry, the homeless, the guilty, the imprisoned, the foolish and self-damaged, the storm-battered, those at their wit's end. You can bring mercy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you get to copy him and bring mercy to the poor, the broken-hearted, the captive those who know dishonour and shame, those who mourn. It's amazing that we get invited into this, isn't it? It's amazing that we get to be mercy bringers like God. But as amazing as it is, it isn't easy. It's actually really difficult. If we really pursue being like God in this, if we say today, God, I want to be like you, I want to be merciful like you, it will make us incredibly uncomfortable. If you... Um, are committed to your own comfort. And to be honest, I think that's one of the biggest problems in our culture and probably one of the biggest problems in our churches is that we have a vice-like grip on our own comfort. We don't want to let it go. But if you want to pursue being merciful like God is merciful, if you want to accept this invitation to be merciful just as your father is merciful, then it's going to make you and me uncomfortable. First of all, it affects our hearts. I don't know about you, but mercy doesn't come particularly naturally to me. I don't just walk around all day feeling so merciful and kind to everyone around me. I find that I don't need any help at all to be critical and judgmental. But somehow I need help to be merciful and kind and compassionate. It's not the natural direction that I lean in. So I need to push into it intentionally. I need to be active with it, otherwise it doesn't happen. It doesn't just happen um, by listening to someone talk about it. It doesn't happen by standing up and talking about it yourself. It's an active thing to take steps into and to push deeper into. I find it much easier to look at someone who needs my help and think, do you deserve it or not? I wonder what you did to get yourself in this situation. I'm so glad God has never looked at me like that. You know? I just find it so easy to look at people and think, well, I wonder if you made your own situation like this. You know, when I walk past people in the street who are asking for money, so often my first question is, if I give it to you, I wonder what you'll do with it. Rather than, I wonder how I can best show you the mercy of God today. It's a fundamentally different question. It's a different starting place to have, to want to show mercy to someone doesn't necessarily mean giving money. It might mean a whole number of things. It might mean just taking time and hearing someone's story. But it means in my heart, I want to start in a different place, which isn't looking at the behavior of the person in front of me. It's looking at the behavior of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to do. Our society judges people based on what they've done or what they failed to do. But followers of Jesus are called to not do that. 
to be different, not to look at the behaviour of the person in front of us, but to look at who God is and how he acts to other people. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not called to be kind to kind people. You're not called to respect people who respect you. I saw this thing on Facebook recently that said, don't cross an ocean for someone who won't cross a puddle for you. And I thought, well, that sounds sensible and wise. It's completely unbiblical. It's not what Jesus does. Imagine if Jesus had done that. God says, no, cross an ocean for someone who wouldn't cross a puddle for you. Be sacrificial. Deny yourself so that you can bring mercy to other people, whether they deserve it or not. You know, in the Old Testament, in Micah 6, it says that God requires his people to love mercy. I've often thought that's strange. I think, why does God need to tell his people to love mercy? You know, for those of us here today who know Jesus and love Jesus, if I said to you, do you love mercy? I'm sure we'd all put our hands up. But I think the reason God has to tell us to love mercy is because if you're anything like me, I find it really, really easy to love the mercy that God has shown me. But I'm not always so keen on the mercy of God when he shows it to other people, particularly if they're people who've hurt me, people I don't like, people I don't understand. Sometimes I don't want God to show mercy to other people. Sometimes I want to say to God, but don't you know what they've done? Which is exactly what the Pharisees said to Jesus all the time. There are lots of people in the Bible who had experienced the mercy of God and yet didn't like it when it was shown to other people. Jonah is a classic example. You know the story of Jonah. God says to Jonah, will you take a message to the people of Nineveh for me? And Jonah doesn't want to, so he runs away in the other direction ends up on a ship and it looks like the ship's going to get wrecked because the waves are crashing all around and there's a fierce storm. And when the people on the ship realise it's Jonah's fault, Jonah says, throw me overboard. And a big fish swallows him up. And God in his mercy spares Jonah's life. And not only that, but God in his mercy says to Jonah, I still want you to be my messenger. What astonishing mercy of God to spare him and still give him the same privilege of being able to take the message to his people. And so Jonah takes the message and when he gets to Nineveh, the people of Nineveh go, okay, we'll repent then. And you know, the Bible says that Jonah is exceedingly displeased and angry at the mercy that God shows the people of Nineveh. Jonah even says to God, I knew you'd do this, that's why I didn't want to come. He throws back God's character at him, God's words from Exodus 34. Jonah says, I knew that you were merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's why I didn't want to come. As if that's a bad thing. This guy who's just seen the mercy of God on his own life doesn't like the mercy when it's extended to the people of Nineveh because he doesn't like those people and he doesn't think they deserve it. And most of us, if we're honest, will have people that we think of who we think don't deserve the mercy of God forgetting that we don't deserve it either. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, um, the younger brother goes off and squanders his dad's wealth and ends up in a right state and ends up coming back, mainly out of necessity because he's starving to death. So he comes back wondering if he'll find mercy and the father greets him with mercy. But the older brother is annoyed about it. The older brother doesn't want mercy shown even to his own brother. And you know, the Pharisees said to Jesus or Jesus' disciples all the time, doesn't, doesn't your master know who he's eating with, who he's talking to, who it is who's spending time with him? Well, of course Jesus knew. 
But the Pharisees didn't want Jesus to be kind to those people who don't deserve it. Even the disciples, you know, two of them, Jesus gave them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. And the reason for that is because these two disciples said to Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven on these people who aren't interested in you? I just think it's astonishing. These disciples had walked with Jesus. And when had Jesus ever called down fire? He didn't do it once. So why the disciples thought this was what Jesus would want is pretty astonishing, isn't it? I mean, it amazes me that the next verse isn't so Jesus gave them a good clip round the ear. I mean, you think, how, how daft are you? You know, when, when has Jesus done that? And yet, they, that was their response. They wanted to call fire down. And so often, if I'm honest with you, that's my response too. I find certain groups of people or certain people in my life frustrating and annoying. And so I'm like, God, yeah, come on, sort them out. And what God's saying to me is, why don't we show them some mercy? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, we can really easily forget that God loves to show mercy. We can make the same mistake as all these people and many others in the Bible and just love the mercy God shows us and forget that he wants to show those around us mercy too. You know, in the verses before Jesus says, be merciful just as your father is merciful, it says this, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind too. And who is he kind to? You know, it amazes me that the next words are, he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. If I make a list of people I want to be kind to, I can assure you the ungrateful and wicked are not at the top of the list. And yet that's who God is kind to. And you know, when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, he ends the story talking about all these people who've walked by, this guy who's lying beaten and battered on the roadside, and people who've come from a place of worship have just walked by and ignored him. And then one person helps him. And Jesus says, of the people who passed by the injured man in the road, which one do you think proved to be a neighbour to him? And the listener replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus invites us to cultivate a heart of mercy like the Father's. Jesus invites us to extend mercy to everyone, but to especially those facing poverty and injustice, the poorest and the most vulnerable. In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that how we treat the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those without clothes who are sick or in prison, is how we treat them. Jesus says it's actually how we're treating him. Sorry, I know it's a bit of a heavy word, isn't it? But it's sobering stuff, and it's the words of Jesus. Second of all, if we really want to pursue a heart of mercy, it won't just affect our hearts, it'll also affect our wallets. Materialism, you know, the acquiring of more and more stuff and money, is rife in our society. It's everywhere. But it's also crept into our churches too. Many of us, if we're really honest, are not living radically in the way we handle our money. Let me share with you the story of John Wesley. John Wesley, who was one of the great preachers of the 18th century, felt moved by God to see how much of his income he could give away to the poor. So when he was 28, he earned £30 a year and he needed £28 to live on, so he gave away £2. The next year, his income doubled and he earned £60, but he still only needed £28 to live on, so he gave away the other £32. 
The following year, his salary went up to £90 and he still only needed the same amount to live on. So he kept 28 and gave away 62. Isn't that so different to our culture? Most of us, if we find out we're getting a pay rise, if you're anything like me, you start thinking, where can I go on holiday? What can I buy? What, do, what can I do with it? Where can I go? Or, oh, it's going to make my life easier. Most of us, our first thought isn't, I'm getting a pay rise. Who can I give it to? How can I give it away? Yet Wesley, hit one year he earned £1,400. And he, that year he needed £30 to live on. So he kept £30 and he gave away the whole rest of it to help the poor. That's radically living with your money, isn't it? It's a challenge. I feel challenged by it. But when I hear a story like that, I feel challenged. But I also get to quite quickly thinking, well, I may not live like Wesley, but I think I'm doing okay. I'm a good steward of my money. I make wise decisions. I give to the church and I give to various charities and I I try to be generous when I can. And I was talking to a friend of mine about this a while ago. And, you know, if I'm honest with you, I think I felt pretty self-righteous, pretty smug about it. I thought I was probably doing okay with my money. And sure, I'm not like Wesley, but I'm not that bad either. Um, And then my friend challenged me to go through my bank statements and see what I actually spend my money on. So I decided to do this. I went through two months of bank statements and I labelled everything as either essential, luxury, given away or grey area. So grey area was things like life insurance, which isn't essential, but certainly doesn't feel like a luxury. So I thought that, I'm not sure where that should go. But under essential, I was really kind to myself. I put things like my mobile phone bill and my broadband, um, things like petrol, even though obviously owning a car isn't essential. I put, if I had um, a, a shopping bill from a supermarket, I put the whole thing in essential, even though I know full well I'd have bought things like wine, which apparently isn't essential. I'm led to believe. Sorry if I've just ruined that for some of you. So bear in mind, you know, I get to speak on subjects like this a lot. I get to write about it. So I, I, you know, I'm mindful that I need to practice what I preach. I need to live like it. So I genuinely thought I was doing pretty well at this. But just through going through my bank statements, even with being kind to myself in what I classified as essential, I still found that in that two months, I spent well over a quarter of my income on luxury. You might think, that's not that bad. Some of you are probably thinking, that's awful. I was really shocked. I thought it was pretty awful. But some of you might think, that's not that bad. It's not like it's over half. I mean, you know, it could have been worse. But I keep asking myself this question. Is it ever okay for me to have way more than I need when there are people around me who don't have the basics that they need? And I'm pretty sure that God's answer to that question is no. I'm pretty sure that if I've got disposable income, God wants me to use it to show mercy to other people. I'm pretty sure that God, in fact, I know it because it says in James, do not live in luxury and self-indulgence. So I know that God wants me to use my disposable income. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't have a load of money. Like, the end of the month's pretty tight for me. But I know that compared to a lot of people, even in this country, in my community, I do have a lot. And the thing is, if you say to God, I want to be more merciful, if you say, I want to accept your invitation to be merciful like my father is merciful, then the sad thing, the sad fact is God will ask you for more and more of your money. Do you know what? Actually, it's not a sad thing. It's an absolute joy when you give yourself to this, but it's painful. It can be hard. You know, um, just very recently, someone in my church um, was telling me about their credit card debt. 
And they were saying that they felt absolutely overwhelmed by the interest on it. They felt like they were never getting any progress um, in paying it off because they could only ever pay off the interest. They weren't able to ever make a dent in the money they'd actually borrowed. So they felt trapped and they felt like they'd never be free from it. And I was about to offer to pray for them. And I, I literally felt God say to me in a second, don't you dare. Give them the money interest-free so they can pay it off and pay you back without interest. And I said, no. So I'm just honest with you. I mean, I said yes eventually, but it took a while. There's this wrestle. You know, do you, you have that in those split seconds when in your heart there's this massive battle going on? And I was like, God, I can't. And this person's still telling me, and I'm thinking, God, no, shush. You know, it's not a small amount of money. In fact, it was almost exactly the amount of money I had in a bank account which was ready in case anything goes wrong with my car or my boiler or anything like that. And I said, God, it'll wipe out that safety net I've got. And also, what if they don't pay me back? And God just challenged me, is it yours anyway? Or is it his? And do you know, when I told um, the woman... Do you know what? I've I've got enough. I can pay that off for you and you can pay me back interest-free however long it takes you. She burst into tears and said, I cannot believe that you would do this. This just makes me know that God isn't blaming me for my debt, but he wants me to be free from it. And I was like, wow, okay, God, you're right, I'm wrong. You're wise, I'm not so much. You know, it reminded me of um, in James 2 where it says, what good is it if you say to someone, bless you, bless you? but you don't solve the problem if you can. What, what good is that? Many of us have got money just sitting there, and when we hear about someone's problem, we actually could be the answer to, the, to our own prayers. And I felt God say to me, don't just pray. I mean, praying's good, obviously, but, but don't just pray when you could actually just do something about it. So if we really want to grow in mercy so we can be merciful like God, then it affects how we handle our money. It affects our attitudes to money. But finally, it also affects our dinner tables. You know, Jesus was really happy to eat with a wide range of people. It astonishes me as I read the Gospels who Jesus ate with. He ate with tax collectors and sinners that would have been prostitutes and thieves and gamblers. He ate with Simon the leper. Imagine that. This guy's known as Simon the leper. Imagine he comes to you and he says, do you want to come around for dinner? For many of us, we'd be like, oh, I don't know, actually. I'm not sure. Jesus also ate with Simon the Pharisee. The Pharisees, it says, they just wanted a way to trick Jesus, to trap him. And Jesus knew that, and yet he ate with them. The good news is whether you're here someone today who looks like a morally upright religious leader, or whether you're someone who everyone else avoids and despises, Jesus will eat with you. He will sit with you. Jesus ate with the rich and with the poor. He fed the crowds, but he also ate with an individual, Zacchaeus. He ate with those who would later deny him, those who would betray him. He ate with those who wished him harm, and he ate with those who loved him. And actually, for me as a Christian, meals have been a key part of my story. Um, I grew up in a working-class family in relative poverty, um, and when I was really small, we lived in a council flat on the 16th floor with no central heating, and the only phone was on the ground floor, that, and it was shared between everyone in the whole 16 blocks. Um, I had free school meals at primary school. And then when I became a Christian when I was 15, I suddenly started getting invited to dinner around people's houses because I became a Christian in a nice middle-class church. And middle-class people like to have you around for dinner. And it was 
genuinely a bit scary for me because I'd never seen food served, you know, one dish is meat, one dish is vegetables, one dish is potatoes. Uh, I'd never had food served up to me like that. And then nice middle-class people, if you're the guest, they always want you to go first. And so they'd say to me, you go first. And I think, I don't have no idea whether you're supposed to take the food in a particular order. How much do you take so you look grateful but not greedy? Honestly, I used to find it deeply stressful, but there was also something of God's heart of mercy towards me in the fact that people invited me around for dinner, in the fact that people had me in their homes and were prepared to share their food with me. And actually, even today, as a single woman in my church, one of the primary ways that I experience the mercy and the love of God for me is still through meals. I recently managed to go 17 nights in a row with people in the church cooking me dinner. I think that's quite impressive. I am aiming for a month. If any of you want to help with that. (laughs) Um, But seriously, there's a challenge here for us. Because even for some of us who maybe spend hours um, helping at a night shelter or a soup kitchen or a food bank or things like this, in one sense, it's quite easy to share food from a project or the church with people. But sharing our own food and our own tables with people is quite something different. And actually, do you know what? It's really funny. Just yesterday, while I was finalising this part of my talk, I was just going over my notes, um, I got an email to our food bank um, email, uh, Facebook messenger actually, saying, I haven't eaten for six days, can you help me? And I'll be honest with you, even though I get to talk on this stuff, my first reaction was, I'm really too busy, I can't do it right now, it's the weekend. And I just felt God go... Like, what are you preparing a talk on? What are you doing? And I thought, but I can't help God. And then I remembered that there is a soup kitchen. So I said to this guy, there's a soup kitchen you can go to tonight. He said, I actually can't walk. I can't, I'm housebound. I can't leave the house. Is there any other way you can help me? I was like, okay, why don't you call this person or that person or whatever? And just over a series of messages, it became quite clear that this guy wasn't going to be able to access help for anyone else. And I was thinking, I'm too busy, I've got stuff to do, I'm supposed to be going to a party tonight. Honestly, this is what was going through my head. And I just felt God just gently whisper, buy him some food, just do something about it. And so I ordered him a pizza and sent it to his house. And again, he's writing a message to me going, I can't believe you've done this, why would you do it? And I'm not standing here telling you that story so you'll think, oh, that's nice. I'm telling you it because even though I'm actively walking in this, it is an effort. My first responses are often not what I would want them to be. But it's a journey that God invites us into to become more like him. It's a journey we can walk in with him. God delights to show mercy. He is rich in mercy. He loves to be merciful to those who don't deserve it. That's the very nature of mercy. Everyone, um, to anyone that society would write off, to anyone that society would say, you have no value, God says, you have value and I want to show you mercy. Just think how different our society would be if mercy was one of the defining characteristics of it. Think how different the Brexit debate would be if mercy was across all sides of the political spectrum. But at the minute when we look to our politicians or the media or social media, mercy is so noticeably absent from public life. But as the church, we have an opportunity to take our place as the mercy bringers, as those who will bring mercy when no one else will. When we intentionally pursue the mercy of God, 
It will make us uncomfortable. It will affect our hearts, our wallets, who we mix with, who we'll invite into our homes, whose homes we'll go into as well. It will mean we start to prioritise the needs of others against our own needs at times. But what an amazing privilege that we get to be merciful just like the Father is merciful. I'd love it as the band come back up. If you feel like, do you know what, I want to be more merciful, would you? I wonder if you'd stand, because I'd love to pray. Why don't you do whatever helps you receive from God, whether that's put your hands out or kneel or whatever for you just helps you engage. Father, we thank you that you are the merciful one. Thank you that it's who you are and you are who you say you are. You never change. Thank you there's no day when you're not merciful to us. Thank you you've never said to us, you made your bed, so go lie in it. But you have lavished your mercy upon us. And God, we want to be like you. What a wonderful invitation from you that we get to be like you. It's astonishing, God, but help us. We need your help. We can't do it on our own. Uh, Our hearts don't lean in this direction naturally unless you help us. So Holy Spirit, we pray, would you come now and cement this in our hearts? Would you help us? Would you give us practical steps we can take, even this week, to let you work in our hearts to give you whatever money you want from us, to give you our dinner tables, our homes, our friendship circles. God, we submit it all to you. We loosen our grip on our own comfort and say, God, we want to be like you. We're more committed to being like you than we are to our own comfort. We're more committed to showing mercy to those that you love and adore Jesus than we are to our own comfort. Would you come and have your way among us? Would you, would you change us? Would you make us more like you? And I pray you'd give us great joy as we get to bring mercy to others. Just as you delight to bring mercy, would we be those who delight to bring mercy to God? In Jesus' name, amen.